Hey everybody, it's Craig from the Emergency Response and Risk Management Podcast for the University of Applied Research and Development. I'm delighted to have with us Alex Quintella, who's a member of our contributing faculty for our Emergency Response and Risk Management faculty and programs. Hi Alex, welcome. Craig, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here because you're an experienced emergency response specialist, and I'd love to just get your feedback. You were one of our very first, if not the first, uh, interviews that we did on our videocast and our podcast when we launched, launched our emergency response program. So I'd love to get your feedback and for the rest of the world to hear, you know, what's the <laughs> state of the situation there? Because the media's giving lots of different information about the impact of coronavirus and also not only the health impacts, but the non-health impacts. So I'd just love to hear from you. Where are things really at? Yeah, um, so gosh, that causes me to pause for a moment because I think that there's a lot of different ways you can answer that. But I think, I think as, as we stand right now in, in, in the States, we're still struggling to get a grip of the actual um, the virus itself. Um, you know, and, it's, and it doesn't really, for, for my purposes, politics aside, right, because it's become very politicized here in the United States, um, I think the, there's no there's no denying that the response has been very confusing right now, because you don't have a national response, and you're uh, you're depending on each state having its own set of. Even though the CDC issues its guidelines, each state has been responsible for its own response. What you're seeing is kind of one state doing one thing and another state doing another thing, and it's kind of created this this overlap of a struggle to find a true solution to testing and actually getting ahead of the situation by being able to trace those who come in contact. Um, then there's the other side of this, which is right now we find ourselves in the middle of a summer season where we're experiencing record heat. Uh, you know, hurricanes are a big concern, top of mind. If you go out to the, well, that's in the East Coast. If you go to the West Coast, it's wildfires. Sandwiched all that in between are folks who already are traditionally, uh, uh, you know, disproportionately impacted, right? So folks of color, you know, black, Latino, uh, and these folks are currently experiencing higher mortality rates. Uh, just black people alone in the United States, unfortunately, are, are the mortality rate for them is 60% right now. It's, it's almost double that of people who have access to care of, of, of white people, right? So I think for me, when I look at those things, I, I quickly say there's people who already struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to obtain these things that they need. And now we're finding ourselves in a situation where these folks are the ones who are truly having to, to kind of find themselves not just dealing with unemployment, but possibly with actually how are they going to take care of themselves and of their families. It's a very difficult time right now, um, and it's one that, unfortunately, I don't see getting any, uh, any better anytime soon. Alex, I wanted to ask you, you just said that uh, mortality rate for African Americans is 60%, which is double, I think you said earlier, double the right. rate for anybody else. Is that because they just don't have access to health care? Is it an access issue, or is it the quality of the health care they're getting is very low? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and, 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 I'll, and I'll give you an example of, of what I'm talking about. So 
Yes, I think you, when you look at traditionally the, the access to healthcare for these folks has not been good in the States. It's just, there's not a good track record. Specifically where I live in North Carolina, there was an article that came out uh, months ago that detailed the difficulty or the um, access of women who were getting ready to either birth or um, giving uh, birth, right? Uh, that the mortality rate for those women who as women of color is significantly higher than white women. So that already points to some of the disparities that you already experience within the healthcare system on a day-to-day -day basis. Now you bring into the mix COVID, where testing, you know, access has been spotty at best, right? Uh, you know, and then now I think, you know, one of the problems that we're experiencing also is, is that one out of every five uh, black workers and one out of every six Latino workers have the capacity to work from home. What you have is people who are having to go to work. They don't have the choice just to make ends meet. That by default exposes them to the virus because a lot of these folks work in middle to lower income jobs, such as is the case in right now we're seeing in the Rust Belt of the States, that's the Midwest where there's a lot of meat processing factories. Uh, and here in North Carolina, you have a lot of plants as well. And you're, you're hearing the stories of a lot of these workers becoming ill. And because they've been declared essential, essentially what they get told is, okay, go quarantine like everybody else, only if you have symptoms. And as we know, the virus has demonstrated that you may not exhibit symptoms. So what is that doing to these households and all these other folks that are impacted, right? So again, I think it's a little bit of both. So the access to healthcare, the quality healthcare is obviously not there then um, in mm. the first place. Yeah. And then the healthcare they're receiving is not at the standard that other people might be receiving. So that's uh, that is a problem. Um, I mm. remember when we spoke the first time, I just finished watching a webinar um, with some mm. UN health experts and some local in the Pacific area where I am in the ASEAN region experts talking about the non-health impacts will be far greater than the health impacts. And it seems the health-related impacts are huge right now. So what are some of those non-health impacts that you're seeing at the moment that are also related to inequality that are of concern? That, yeah, and it's a great point because one of the things that I've been saying is, is that this goes well beyond the point of just the virus anymore, right? It is having a significant, far-reaching economic impact. Here, um, you know, just to give you an example, in the States right now, they're really tussling with another stimulus package. Uh, you may have heard that, and, and when I say stimulus package, uh, the legislature passed a, a just never heard of unprecedented package in response to all of the economic impacts and the response itself that was necessary to the virus. That was months ago where every American household for the most part got payouts. Now, there have been issues with who's gotten what and how that has been distributed. 
apparently a lot of that money has not gone to where it's supposed to end up. The good, the perfect example of those folks who have not received those monies are small businesses, specifically those of color. So what you have is, you know, your hair salons, you have uh, your mom and pop coffee shops, your local food shops that people frequent, right? These think when I, when I talk about these businesses, think, think about the staples in the community, but they're very small. Take that model and bring that into the inner city where you have folks already again middle to lower incomes and now you start to strip the communities because they don't have the financial support or backing that they thought was coming to them what does that do right it, it just propagates a vicious cycle and again these are communities that have already been traditionally underserved by a system that unfortunately has fostered a certain kind of injustice. And that in and of itself is another conversation. <laughs> we could be here far longer talking about those things. Um, but it, 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 again, it just is becoming cyclical in nature. And what you're finding now is, is that it's not just COVID, it's unemployment. It's you know, these folks' abilities to get access to health care. It's going to become the bills. It's going to become how do they pay rent. Evictions are on the rise for folks of color. As a matter of fact, most places that passed uh, some sort of protection for evictions, those evictions, uh, those protections are now expiring. And so the rush is now happening to try to pass those other protections again, because while you can protect folks from not being evicted, you cannot stop the legal process. And you're hearing of uh, stories, unfortunately, of property managers and landlords who are basically in the process, in the, in the, in the back end of filing for these evictions. So what you have is when the protections expire, the court cases open up right away. And if the person cannot pay the whatever is due in arrears, then they have no place to go. And again, unfortunately, the, the, the populations that this has impacted are those ethnic minority groups that are already disproportionately and traditionally underserved. So there's homelessness potentially and eviction and the stress of the finances that go with that. There's the lack of access to healthcare and then there's the lack of receiving quality healthcare and then there is the unemployment, the inability for large portions of certain communities to be able to do the work they would normally do from home. So as an educator I can work from home, a gardener or someone working in a meat processing factory can't work from home, it's not a job that translates to work from home. Yeah, and then we have small businesses. And that's interesting, Craig. But you bring up an interesting point there because the, the there's there's a few more things there that go in there, and it's here in the states. Working from home means that a lot of times you have to have a great connection to internet, or you have to be even able to afford internet, Wi-Fi, things like that, right? And again, these are all those things. Schools are the perfect example. Right now, there's also, hey, return to school, right? There's a big push to do that. Schools are being cautious and they're saying, hey, I don't know about that. We don't want to 
put the kids into the classroom with concerns about social distancing, the virus spreading, and, and whatnot. But the problem that you have there, again, is in these communities that are traditionally underserved, well, how are they going to introduce remote learning into households that cannot have the capacity to do remote learning, either because they don't have access to the tools or the internet? Didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to point that out because that's a great point that you bring that up. Yeah, and that's a, that's a community-based problem that some communities would have and others don't. There is that inequality or inequitable access to those things that they need. And then the small businesses, like you said, who, who maybe can't access or receive or haven't received the support that maybe larger businesses or businesses in other communities might have got. And then you have the seasonal nature of coming into hurricane season as well. That's right. And, and it's, it's, again, it's, you know, I, I keep referring to that cycle, right? Think about this. Folks in communities are now forced to evacuate. Social distancing is already a concern. Uh, how do you shelter mass amounts of people during a pandemic is a concern as well. How do you care for those folks, right? Because are you going to test them when they arrive at your shelter? Probably not. That's just the reality. I think well-intentioned emergency responders and emergency managers will try to do their best to do that. But I think that what we're going to find is, is that inevitably, because of the situation and the circumstances, there are going to be people who slip through the cracks. And what is that going to do to folks that are sheltering? Are they going to get sick now? Is that going to become what you hear a super spreader incident where one small cluster now infects a bigger cluster and then it continues to spread throughout? We're already seeing instances of that here in the southern United States where folks or I'm sorry, states that have opened sooner than they needed to have now seen that because people are getting together more frequently, and in larger groups, they're getting infected. But again, hurricane season poses that different kind of threat, right? And these are, again, you have a lot of communities on the eastern seaboard of the United States. They're very densely populated and very close to each other. And they also have very, very significant populations of middle to low income folks, folks who are, again, traditionally underserved, right? What do you do with those people? When Hurricane Katrina struck, there is a great amount of research that was done that demonstrates that when these folks had to relocate, right, already folks, again, people of color, and had to relocate, that what that did, the amount of gentrification that happened because of it, okay, it basically starts a vicious cycle in other cities. So as these populations relocate, it causes the development and the gentrification in other areas of the country. So tie in systemic already injustices and inequities with disasters overarching COVID. And what you have is just a, a, just a recipe for, I don't want to say disaster, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's certainly nothing good. 
And it seems to be, I know that it's um, maybe died down because it's not in the media so much right now, but social unrest as well, uh, protests mm. and things happening where the concern for uh, health, like wearing a mask or social distancing just goes out the window and no one bothers with that. And, and that seems to be, I don't know if there's any um, rise or peak or surge of, of people becoming infected in situations like that, but I would imagine if if schools have to have social distancing and churches can't open and businesses, people have to work from home, but then people are congregating in large numbers, shouting or using loud loud voices and speaking out loud, there's going to be another opportunity for a rise and then that dispersing back into other communities. So, And it would predominantly, I would imagine, be the underserved communities that are feeling angry, feeling upset, and so they are then congregating together in a, in a hot spot. So I can imagine there are multiple factors just from seeing things in the media um, that are causing danger for people going forward. You said that there is a state-by-state response. Now, I'm a New Zealander, and so mm. in New Zealand, the government just said, we're locked down, that's it. And they did it, and we stopped it. And as 100,000 New Zealanders have gone back to New Zealand over the last couple of months, you know, people have gone back with the virus, but the numbers that we have are something like between 20 and 30 for a population of four and a half million, which is very small. So I think the response on a national basis was a good idea. It seemed right. to have stopped and then created a managed response. Not perfect, but a managed response. So in America, I understand there's federal and there's state. What should the nation do to get a comprehensive response to the situation? Should it stay state by state, or does there need to be a whole-of-nation response? Well, that's interesting that you bring that up, because the, the, the propaganda, if you will, and, I'll, and I just call it that because, the, in fact, there has been a push from the administration, they call it a whole-of-America response. However, in practice, it hasn't really been that. Um, and again, that's because there's been a lot of inconsistency. Um, and I understand that regionally, right, some regions have been more impacted than others. But I think right now where we are consistently as a country, we're seeing numbers rise. We're seeing mortality rates rising. But I think something that gets lost in the context is that, you know, we talk about COVID and, you know, the mortality rates are still, you know, most people can recover and, and you know, the mortality rates are still I guess what they're calling acceptable losses to me, you know, I don't know that there are any acceptable losses, but what I will say is this, it isn't about so much about that. It is about the other things that are happening right now. You look at the hospitals, for example, you have hospitals in major American cities that right now cannot handle the search of these COVID patients. And so what you have happening is, is that you have these hospitals being built either offsite or, you know, like a hospital parking lot to handle these COVID patients. PPE shortages, so per personal protective equipment, good luck trying to find them. So you have healthcare providers that are getting sick, right? When I look at right now, these are the things that I think the federal government could support a lot more and could really, if they were more with a federal consistent response across the country, I think we could get these things under control. From early on, the messaging was very haphazard. And I think 
what you have happening now is the political, uh, politicization of mask wearing, of taking this serious or seriousness or not, the physical distancing, the social distancing that we talk about, even that's become a political, everything is political about this thing right now. And I think that that's the big problem. Because when I look at that, I say to myself, we're still responding to this. If we expect to recover, right? I would use the analogy of the interstate. For every 15 minutes that an interstate highway, a major highway in this country shut down, statistically speaking, we lose about a million dollars in the economy, right? What are we going to lose if this continues to ramp up and we do not get a hold of the situation? Again, it isn't just about people getting sick anymore. It's about all the other long-term effects that we're going to start to experience and that we're actually seeing right now. There's only for so long that this country can continue to print money and, and, and put out stimulus packages and, and give money to people before we start to run into a problem ourselves as, as a country, economically speaking. I think we're already there. Now, granted, do I think we can come back? Yes. Do I think that there's, that there's light at the end of the tunnel? Sure. But we all have to buy in. That's, that's the biggest problem that, that's going on right now. It has become too political and it's not about people. If we make the focus people and helping each other, I think that we can get to a better place. Right now, it's going to be very, very difficult. The road ahead of us is, is not a good one. So the federal government really needs to support um, with supplies and resources to make things happen so that state by state, the response can be at that level that it needs to be to respond to the, the patients that are sick. That's what you're saying, rather than a different type of response, like taking over. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm, yeah, let me be clear about that. I'm not suggesting that the federal government come in and take over because when you say that here in America, it automatically means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I, right. I am not suggesting that in any way, shape, or form. What I am saying, though, is, is that everybody needs to get on the same page because since that's not happening right now, it, it's, 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 you know, it's like your radio. If you're on a, if you're in, I'm going to use my, <laughs> my previous life as a responder. And I'm going to say, if you don't hear the, the, the message on the radio, then you don't know what's going on. Right. It, it's very difficult to, to be on the same page, operationally speaking at an incident or operate if you don't know what's going on. And right now that's, that's, that's what you have happening. The message is not getting through. Right. And so, Everybody is kind of doing their own thing. Contact tracing, medical surveillance, is not where it needs to be. We're, we're playing catch-up still, and we're not in front of it. Where I think we should be is we should have already built up the capacity to test people. Whether they have it or not is irrelevant. You want to be able to identify who has it so that you can say, okay, now I know who has it. Let's go ahead and contain these people. Let's isolate these people who doesn't have it. You're, you're good. You're okay. Okay. We know that you're okay. We know that you're healthy. Let's try to keep you that way. That should be the, that should be the goal to work towards that this way we can start to reopen smartly and safely, not just open everything up, 
so that we have to think about closing back down, as you're starting to see in certain states. Texas is a perfect example. Texas, the bars opened pretty fast, and now they're shutting everything back down. They're working, and, and you know, and, and that's really hard to do. When you tell people we're open, and now you give them their, their, their sense of normalcy, even if it's a little bit, and you give it back to them, but then you take it away again, you know, it, it falls on new ears after a while. So again, it's, it's, it's really about striving towards those things, not saying, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to control the response and, you know, we're, we're stopping everything, everybody's shutting it down. No, it's just about being consistent. So Alex, just before we wrap up, because I think we've, you've highlighted a number of things which are unequal in terms of people's lives just just in everyday life. And so this coronavirus, COVID-19, has exacerbated and highlighted a number of inequalities, and it's really impacting some communities far worse than other communities for a number of systemic and community-based you know, reasons. What's one thing that you think any person can do in any community to try to do their part to help provide a response? Wear a mask, right? I think that is something that, again, it has become politicized when it shouldn't be. It's, it's about wearing a mask goes back to caring for each other. And if we have some of the nation's top health officials telling us that we should do this, and by doing so, that we can help stop the spread or slow the spread and keep others safe, then I think that we should do that, that one small thing, right? It's, it's, it's anybody can do that. It's very simple to do. Um, there's a lot of communities here. We talk about disproportionately served and, and the, un, you know, the underserved. Well, there's a lot of communities here that are making that possible for those folks. They're getting into the communities and they're saying, if you don't have the capacity to get a mask, we will give you one. Please wear it. So I think to me, that's probably above all. It's let's stop making this political and let's start making this about each other. It's it, it, to me, it's a very straightforward thing. Put a mask on, care for each other. We're in this together, you know, and, and, and we can move forward. Yeah, look, I think that's really doable, isn't it, for anybody? I think so. And keep brothers. Alex, I really want to thank you for your time. I know it's late there and you bring a unique perspective because you're in the middle of it, you know, and working for large corporations and your background right at the cold face of emergency response. So thank you very much for sharing your perspective and highlighting some of the issues that are going on right now. My pleasure, Craig. Thanks for having me.